Welcome, brothers and sisters. So glad you're with us this Sunday morning worshiping online. We long for you to gather and come back with us. Uh, we, we have different venues in the church building as, as we've tried to communicate via video or emails. We have three venues that are open. You register. Two of them have singing that we do at the end of the service. One is a non-singing venue. We would love for you to come back and gather. Uh, we, we, we trust your judgment regarding what is safe and best for your families, but to want to remind you also at the spiritual level and as your, as your shepherds that the, the church is the gathering of God's people. So I want to encourage you as you're thinking about when to re-enter in and what that fits with your health risks and other concerns that God, God wants us to gather and be together. We're not sinning in these moments to be careful and cautious, but, but, but return, brothers and sisters, and gather with the people of God. We just encourage you to do that. We are in a rough text. If I'm, if I'm being honest with you, if we were sitting over coffee and talking about this, I would tell you that this text that you just heard read um, is one of the most debated and difficult texts. And it's not just that it's difficult to understand, it's also debated. Both of those make this arguably the hardest text in the New Testament. It is so difficult that I am actually going to spend not one, not two, but three weeks working through these verses. In fact, even this week, rather than getting into all the nitty-gritty of the verses themselves, I'm going to give some larger categories because we just have to have some spectacles to be able to know uh, what we're looking at and to see it rightly. We need to know that. There's a, there's a well-known book from a few years ago called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And man, it doesn't take much for us, even just in casual conversations or basic cultural assumptions, to look at the differences between men and women. And it's more than just the differences about which we joke or, or speak. It is also a point of great tension and conflict. It has been arguably in almost every culture and certainly ours. And we're coming out of things like the Me Too movement with sexual abuse and, 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 and prioritization of salaries and numerous things that call strife between men and women. So the moment we enter into what God wants to say about men and women, we need to be careful. We need to know that we come with our own baggage. We come with our own assumptions and understandings and we want to hear from God's word. That's why we're gonna start with an overview, a bigger picture so to speak, some category development so that we can rightly enter into this text carefully and with precision. And in a sense, it's kind of like what my family calls a man's talk. That's what my sons have called it. For, for each of my boys, and forthcoming with our daughter, but for each of my boys, uh, they were in, we, we had our kids in public school. And before they would get exposed to all the kind of talk about their bodies or about intimacy or those other kind of things, we would want to sit down and talk with them. We call it the man's talk. That's what the boys would say. And I would start with an initial man's talk where I would just talk about how God made them, how he designed their bodies, that these are things that are okay and we can talk about. And then there would be a later man's talk where we'd talk about the more intimacy things and the things that are God designed for marriage and for the family. And those kind of man's talks were important, established an understanding that we could use as a foundation for other conversations that would come later as, as we, their mom and dad, tried to raise them well, understanding how God designed for them, so their bodies to exist, their relationships to happen. We wanted to have this kind of man's talk. Well, today we're kind of having a man's and woman's talk. 
We're going to make sure that we are clear on how God designed the relationship between men and women. No, men are not from Mars, and women are not from Venus. Men and women are from Eden, based on the design of God, their creator. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, help us uh, this morning, and, and even help us for the next three weeks to take on what is a difficult text. But Lord, we come to this text knowing that you are the author. These are your words, which means they're good, and they're true, and they're ones that we, we, to which we must submit and align our lives. Father, even if it pushes against us or challenges us, Father, we want to hear your words. So we pray that both we are faithful with your word, not only in the teaching of it, Lord, that I may be faithful for our people, but also that we're faithful in receiving your word. So we ask for your spirit to facilitate and minister to us in this process, but we thank you for your word. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by just giving some perspective on biblical Christianity and its engagement regarding the topic of men and women. There could be a lot of characterizations about the Christian faith. And I want to just summarize it by saying this. Historic Orthodox Christianity offers a beautiful and foundational perspective on men and women. It is beautiful. Historic Orthodox Christianity takes what the Bible gives as God's inerrant, sacred, authoritative word. And we just believe that what God says about men and women is beautiful. And I even want to say that because the story we believe about the world, how it was made, what our purpose is, the story we believe and therefore live really matters. And we just need to be reminding our people, the church needs to be reminded that God's word tells the story, not a story, the story of the world from, from creation to new creation, all the way through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And that story fits who we are, how we're supposed to live, how God made us, why he made us, and how we're supposed to live in light of all that. The story matters. We should be teaching our children, reminding one another about this story. And this could not be more important than when we're thinking about the genders or the sexes. And I, I won't qualify those things throughout my message in the next couple weeks. Gender, generally speaking, is defined as cultural assumptions regarding man or woman. Sexes language is generally more the biological categories, the, the, the parts versus, versus the, the cultural aspects. I'll use those terms synonymously and primarily use the language of gender, though I'm well aware that in academic discourse, etc., there is debate and discussion over those things. That's not something we need to enter into. We believe, as with historic Christianity, there is that God made male and female. And we believe that that is the true story of the world. But there is great confusion in our day about these things. The story that this culture or the world and other cultures tell is a, is a story that surrounds debate. And even more than that, there has been horrible stories of abuse going on between men and women. And this abuse isn't just outside the church. Even in recent years in churches in the greater Chicago area here in northern Illinois, there has been abuse by men toward women. And so we want to enter into this conversation with that in mind. There is brokenness out of which we exist. So, so let me just summarize the kind of three things that help explain the historic Orthodox Christian view on men and women. First is the design. 
In Genesis 1 through 1 to 3, the beginning of the story speaks of the interrelationship. Hear all these words. The, the interdependence and the essential equality of men and women. That's the, that's the story the Bible tells. There might be different versions that you have heard, but the story the Bible tells is that God made man and woman, male and female, in his image. He didn't just make man in his image, he made woman in his image. When he gives the commands about be fruitful and multiply and cultivate creation, he wasn't just speaking to the man, he wasn't just speaking to the woman, he was speaking to the man and the woman. Humanity is a plurality. It is man and woman, both made in the image of God, both designed to cultivate creation in cooperative harmony and mutual blessing. That is so important to know that when you see the beginning of the biblical story, Genesis 1 and 2, you are told that God designed humanity to be made of male and female. And they were supposed to be so beautifully interrelated, literally in one flesh, that they reflected the fullness of the design of the, of the pinnacle of creation, which is what humanity is. Of, of all the creation aspects of creation, six times God said it was good, but when he made humanity and described their mutual participation and cooperation and harmony, he said, and it was very good. But then you can talk about the great divorce. Not just the design, but the divorce. What we find is that what we understand as sin, the, the fall, Christians will speak of. When humanity rejected God's purposes and God's plan and really God's person, we learn that there was a divorce. Genesis 1 through 3 teaches us of this divorce, and that divorce wasn't just between creation, you and me, and creator. It was among creation. There was a divorce between humanity and between even men and women. In fact, Genesis 3 specifically teaches us that there will be power in politics that exists between men and women. Listen to Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. And this is part of the, the curse of against creation after the fall. And then he says this, your desire, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Like he's letting us know that when that divorce happened between creation and creator, that vertical divorce where we are separated from God that is only mediated through the work and person of Jesus Christ, there wasn't just a vertical separation and divorce, there was a horizontal one. And now those that are literally made to go together are at odds with one another. That there's conflict and brokenness. Brothers and sisters, who hasn't seen this in our worlds? Who hasn't seen this in our homes? In our own lives? And that isn't just between men and women. We can talk about race and ethnicity. Who need a reminder of that? We can talk about national divorces, fights between nations. We can talk about social or economic. So it's no surprise that there would be such conflict politics and power between the genders. Yet remember, men and women are from Eden, not from Mars and Venus, but from Eden. That was the design. The divorce is because of sin. So there we face a dilemma. Seeking to follow the design as people of the divorce. How do we follow the design? Lord, help us to see your design and to follow that in our marriages, in our relationships as brothers and sisters, in the church, 
as, as, the, as sons and daughters of the king. And I think that's why that theme of marriage is so significant in the Bible. I, I'm not just talking about human marriage. I'm saying that the theme of marriage becomes this theological theme that runs throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God speaks of his people as an unfaithful, adulterous bride. He is, is, is the groom. In the New Testament, Jesus is, is, is the bridegroom. And the church is the bride of Christ. So you see that horizontal and vertical again. The importance of marriage in the Bible is not only that restoring the divorce between God and humanity, vertical, but there's also this focus on that reunification of God's people as and through the blood of Christ as Christians. That's where Christian marriage can be, not yes, difficult, but so beautiful. A Christian marriage where it's not just a covenant between a man and a woman, but it's part of that larger covenant work of God, where we are being transformed into the image of Christ, and our unification, our reunification, is actually bringing back and healing what was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. But at least I want you to hear that beautiful perspective on men and women, that intentional harmony, the design and purpose of for which God created not just one gender, but two, not just men and not just women, but male and female. Now, before we can enter into these verses, which man, if you, if you listen to, to, to the reading of those, I, I'm sure that immediately eyebrows went up, you bristled at the language, uh, you, you, you felt the harshness of the words that were stated. Before we can even talk about those words, we need to put on some gospel spectacles. That is, Christians must enter into any discussion on gender with gospel categories, gospel spectacles. We need to put on the biblical spectacles of the Bible so that we can rightly see what we're talking about or even how we're looking at them. I want to give you a few categories. but I use the word categories. Think of boxes that, that store a bunch of ideas in and hold them in one place. I want to give you a few idea boxes, categories, before we look at the details of the verse, so that when we jump into the details next week, you can be prepared. I want to tell you first about two official positions in evangelicalism today regarding men and women in the church. There's two camps, two parties, so to speak. I want to define them for you and talk about them. They're ism words, they're two big ism words, but it's good to learn these words. These are categories that are helpful. Again, these are boxes to, to store some ideas in. The first official position is called egalitarianism. And when you think of egalitarianism, just one word summary is think rights. My rights, my freedom, my rights as an individual. Here would be a definition. Egalitarianism would argue that there is no distinction in any way between men and women, specifically, but also in the church. Now, the biblical support for this would be Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither, verse 28 is the key, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Get this, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now that's interesting. That language there's no male and female is significant. An egalitarian position takes this as like a thematic, summarizing, generalizing verse. Meaning we should no longer even think in categories of male and female. In Christ they've been gone. Now this position fits very well our current culture. It fits beautifully the Me Too moment. And it perfectly fits the ethos of the contemporary spirit of the day, meaning egalitarianism is the ethos of our world in every place. Whether it's sports or jobs or salaries or politics, egalitarianism is the spirit of the day. But this particular position can struggle in certain ways. It can struggle to make sense of many biblical texts. For example, what do you do with the texts that do speak about specific roles or, or positions or, or, or distinguishing factors or functions between men and women? What do you do with those? It also then, it, another thing it can do is it, it, it seems to deny the goodness of creation. Like if God was pleased to make them men and women, why all of a sudden when Jesus comes is he denying the very physical Distinctions that he made and called very good. Like, is that what these verses are doing? Finally, another struggle might be that this position, egalitarianism, lacks a sense of otherness or selflessness that is so clearly taught in Scripture and modeled by Jesus. Meaning, if we mainly think of our rights, my rights, my rights, don't tell me what to do, give me my rights. If we think of only our rights, man, we miss what Jesus modeled. Listen to Philippians chapter 2 talk about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But taking the form of a servant, Jesus humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death. If, if our rights were the most important thing, why in the world would Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, not claim all his rights and say, I don't have to die. I'm the creator. I will not be put to death by my creation. But even though he was in the form of God, meaning even though he had the rights of God, Philippians 2, 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold it so tightly that that dominated all. He didn't merely think in rights. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So when Paul speaks about male and female being no more, what is he saying? Is he contradicting himself elsewhere when he talks about the created good, about even in this particular text? I mean, please note, Galatians 3 is written by Paul, but so are the verses in 1 Timothy 2 that we're reading today. When he gives specific commands and prohibitions differentiating between men and women, why would he do that in 1 Timothy 2, but then in Galatians 3, throw those out the window? Is he contradicting himself? Has he changed his mind? Or is he speaking about something different? And certainly I think in Galatians 3, he is. Our identity in Christ trumps other identities. It doesn't erase them. Meaning I have access to Christ no matter whether I'm male or female. But my function under Christ can still look a little different. 
I have unity in Christ. My unity is not based on my, my worth as a, as a man or a woman. It's not based on my whether I'm a slave or free. It's not based on being Jew or Greek. But that's only because my access to God through Christ eliminates all the need for that. Christ is the merit. It doesn't deny that I'm a male and not a female. It wouldn't deny that I'm sweet as German and not Jewish. Egalitarianism, first position, think right. Second position, complementarianism. If I'm giving a one-word summary, I would say think roles. Here's the definition. There is a God-designed structure that distinguishes between men and women in the church. Biblical support would this for this would be arguably for some that well-known passage. In Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, where it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You can see that it goes on then to talk about wives and husbands and the roles that they have between one another. That becomes significant. Notice that the roles are designated. We can think in the category of rights, egalitarianism. There's no restrictions. I can do what I'm called to do because of Christ. Or we can think of roles. The husband is supposed to do this. The wife is supposed to do this. This position fits well not with our current culture at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Our current culture is egalitarian. This position fits well our former or ancient culture of patriarchalism. And it helpfully fulfills that practical desire to define and divide the Bible into functional applications. How is a man to be? What's, what's the role of a man? What's the role of a woman? Give me something practical. It, 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 it's helpful in those ways. But like egalitarianism, it has some struggles. It struggles to fit these functional distinctions into real life. And it can carry easily extra-biblical cultural categories. So what does that mean, that someone is the head? Like again, when we think that language, we can think, well, what is a man? How do we define what a biblical man is? Well, I wonder, I worry that we probably take more of our insight and evidence from that from the culture than we do the Bible. If it was Christ, he would have looked weak. He wouldn't have looked strong. I remember reading a book called Wild at Heart by a guy named Eldridge. He tells the story, I believe, it was of his son who came home from school and was told that there was a bully there. And this bully was messing with him and other kids and Eldridge took his son, I, I'm, I'm not quoting verbatim at all, but he pulled his son close and he, and he says, the next time he comes up to you, I want you to wallop him, make a fist like this. And you wallop him as hard as you can in the stomach. And lo and behold, that's what happened. And the next day or so, the bully came up and the son punched this bully in the gut and boom, it ended. The bully never came at him again. That's, that's John Wayne, man. That's Rambo, Commando. That's a manly man. Nobody messes with me. And then you get Jesus. He literally controlled the oxygen in the lungs of the Roman soldiers who mocked him and beat him. He had hordes of angels who could have slaughtered all of Rome in a matter of hours. And yet he humbled himself to death. When jumped in the garden, 
Peter pulls out rightly, right? Peter's John Wayne. He pulls out the sword to attack and slices Malchus's ear, and Jesus rebukes him for using force. Was Jesus not a man? Is a man who's tough, puts down the bullies, doesn't show any weakness, and change diapers and help in the kitchen? I'm a man. Again, how do we get these categories? What's role are we to play? Is, is, is children for the wife and the mom and not for the man and the father? How about mechanical things? I'd be in a real world of hurt. I remember we got married, Laura and I did, and and, and you know she was raised by a dad who was had some mechanical skill set. We were in an apartment and there was a a, a towel rack that was uh, not on, and she said, it's just assumed, like her dad would, that I'd be the one fixing it. So I grabbed a little tool chest and I'm working on this towel rack to get this lined up. And when I had finished, it was slanted so far down that the towel would just kind of, you put the towel on, it would slide over to one side. And that was, of course, like three hours of exhausting mental labor for me. Finally, she sweetly and kindly came into me and said, would you like me to help you? And you could tell she was trying not to offend because again, we've got these roles, right? Like I'm supposed to be the mechanical one and she's not, but, but, but she is. Two weeks ago, we're getting some work done in our house. We were doing some preparatory work to cut some costs and the guy that was gonna do the work looks at me and says, hey, you guys got this, you got this drill, you know, like if you, if you have that drill. And to me, it sounded like he was going blah, 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 blah. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I'm like, Are you, uh, Laura? And I look over and like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we get that drill. And he's looking at me like, why are you asking your wife? And I, I felt like saying, because she's the mechanical one. But what's that role look like? How about even in our marriage? Like my wife and I, like the guy's like the not the talkative one, right? The, 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 the woman's the one who talks it. I'm more the talkative one. I'm the one that comes home and tells her about my day. She's the one that's just more reserved. So which part of that is, is gender fulfilling? What role are we supposed to play? Who makes the decisions? Am I the one in charge? Is she the one in charge? If I'm the one in charge, would I ever make a decision that I didn't know exactly what her insights were? Would, would it ever make sense that there wouldn't be massive conversation as if I haven't seen a million times when I couldn't see something? Has there ever not been a conversation, a decision that involves all of us thinking through all the issues together so that I'm making sure I know exactly what's gonna meet her needs best? Wouldn't that involve her rather than like, let me order for you. I remember even meeting a couple once where the wife, this, this was just a, this was probably 20 years ago, but the wife said, you know what, I wish I didn't have to vote. I wish my husband could just vote in my stand. Really? Didn't God make you equally in his image? Are you not a full person? Didn't he give you a brain, a will, and a mind to vote as well? Brothers and sisters, as much as there's truth to God having a structure, a design, depicted in things like complementarianism, there's also been massive amounts of abuse. Any Christian leader who is not suffering and serving, any husband who is not suffering and serving the most in that relationship fails to follow the Christian image. I, you, we miss this when we go to Ephesians 5. Verses 22 to 33, there is that passage, and that's the one that the women can so often say, oh, I hate that passage, it's talking about submission, it uses that word. 
But I remember when I was teaching at Biola, I would teach through this text, and I would say, listen, listen, I have a class of a little over 200 students in this New Testament survey class. And I would go through this text, spend a whole hour on it. And I would show, hey, just so you know, guys, there's, there's some verses to the women, and there's, they're, they're, they're thick and dense, and they use submission language, but there's like double the verses on men, and women might have to be functioning in this submission language, fair enough, but you're supposed to die for the woman. But so unless you're willing to give up your life, unless you're willing to see how radical Ephesians 5 was in the early church, where women were like no value, they were just property. They were used and abused. And then in walks the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you literally, you literally should die for what you have thought was just your property. You die for that woman. Like you serve her. We need to be aware of these particular issues. Those are the two common positions, and those positions are debated. And to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, they can even split churches. This isn't an official position, but I'd like to use a different word when you think about that initial design. If I could offer an unofficial position that avoids some of the baggage of the others, I would use the word not egalitarianism and not even complementarianism, but I would use mutualism, a gospel-based Gender mutualism. You know what the word mutuality means? Mutuality is the condition or quality of being mutually dependent. That, that's Bible talk. Like, this, this word expresses what the Bible is saying. Like, literally, the woman came from man, and every other man has come from woman. Literally, you, your parts work together. Literally, man was not made to be without woman. That's mutuality. There's not even, you don't even start with, well, who's in charge? Or you don't even start with, what are my rights? You just see that design of cooperation. Like, that's what you start with, is cooperative design. Mutuality is the condition of our quality of being mutually dependent. A harmonious relationship in which both parties benefit from the association. There's people that speak of economic mutualism or biological mutualism. I want us to think of gender, gospel-based gender mutualism. So if egalitarianism has us think of rights and complementarianism has us think primarily in roles, I wonder if mutualism has us think of responsibilities and rewards. Meaning, before I ever, whatever my role is, and we can talk about those, and that will come up in the next couple of weeks. But whatever my role is, my first thought is not my role or my right, but my responsibility. God made me to, to connect, to minister, to be harmonious with another. Their interests become my interests responsibilities and rewards. God made me to find fulfillment, not in my rights or not in my roles, but in that mutual cooperation and harmony. Think, when you think of rewards, think of a gift and blessing. Here's a key verse, and I think we missed this. Ephesians 5. In fact, if you were to open your Bible to Ephesians 5, you'd find that the whole talk to men and women starts in verse 22. There's usually, almost always a break 
between verses 22 and 21, meaning people start the talk on submission in marriage in verse 22, and they completely miss because of the way we divide our Bibles, none of which, by the way, was in the original texts. And we think that the marriage talk starts in verse 21, but I'd like to tell you it actually started earlier. It doesn't start in 22, it starts earlier. Look at Ephesians 5. Before he even gets to whatever the roles might be, listen to this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Isn't that language? Here you're seeing purpose and design. And then he says this in 18, and be filled with the Spirit. And then you get to verse 21, and this is key. This would be my key verse for mutualism. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, usually we have a break right there. But before it ever mentions submit, wives submit to your husbands, it first says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you want evidence of this, in the actual Greek New Testament, out of which we're translating in English, the word submit in verse 22 is not there. It's implied, and it's right for your translation to put in there. But if you look in my notes, I have verse 22, wives, brackets, submit to your husbands. Meaning, the original would have read something like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands. Husbands, based on verse 21, to your wives. Now that submission may look different, just as our bodies look different. But note the mutuality. It is so strong that Paul doesn't even, i.e. God doesn't even put the word submission in verse 22. Because he wants the force of mutuality to be there. So the moment we think of rights or roles, we're missing the mutuality. I like the word mutuality because it reflects God's design for interdependence, for cooperation, for harmony. It is a mutual submission as to the Lord. Again, look at Ephesians 5.21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So rather than kind of a one versus the other, it's that triangle with Christ at the top. Our submission to Christ, creator, designer, is reflected in our submission to our wife, to our husband. It's a gospel-based mutuality because the gospel reverses the order of things. Mutuality doesn't deny a divine design, but its structure is directed by the gospel. For those that are like the language of roles, fair enough, but Christ's role Sovereign king of the universe clearly wasn't always the primary category by which he lived. And neither does the New Testament speak to us that way. It tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's otherness, sacrifice. It tells us to love your enemy, otherness, sacrifice. It tells us to sacrifice, support, suffer, serve. It says die to yourself, deny yourself. That's what mutuality looks like. Sisters, I can only imagine that if your husband was dying to self, was denying himself in this mutuality as to the Lord to love you in the exact way as he can accommodate understanding every little 
inch in need that you have, you would feel such love. And you would be not only responding and obeying God's word, but in harmonious, cooperative response would want to please him and enjoy him and meet his every little need and talk about a beautiful marriage. Rather than maybe many marriages which fight over rights and debate over roles. Instead of thinking of our own responsibilities and the rewards God gives us. Brothers and sisters, we're going to jump into these verses in detail next week, but I need to give you those categories. But before we conclude, let me just let me let me just say this: that these difficult and debated five verses will require some things from you. I'm, I'm going to give you three that I just want you to think about and pray about before we gather again next Sunday. The first is this: we need you and I, Christians, need to be ready for Scripture to offend us. Gospel's offensive. Paul says it's a stumbling block, it's foolishness, that's what it is to people. It is, it is, it is truth to us, and it will be offensive. The Bible will tell us we're sinners, we, we need Jesus, we're incompetent on our own, we are broken and rebellious, it will put us in our place. So be prepared to be offended. God and his message are offensive to a sinful, prideful, broken creation. Even as believers in Christ, we've still got that sinful flesh and that prideful, broken aspect in our lives. We will be offended. Remember, we're looking at the design God made for his children, but as children of the divorce. So we're on this side of the divorce, trying to get to that design. It'll be offensive. Second, we need to be willing to examine our cultural assumptions and practices. Like, not everything we do is drawn from Scripture. I would argue that that Eldridge book, as helpful as it may have been for some of you, was actually borrowing more from John Wayne than from Jesus. And there, there are some of our practices and assumptions that may even oppose what Scripture says. We need to be aware of that. We need to let Scripture teach us what is true and right and real. God does have a design. He does have a structure. He does have an organization. But it looks different than the way maybe more often than not our cultures and the influence our culture can have on us. Last thing, we need to, this is posture, we need to sit under the Word of God, not over it. Sit under the Word of God as humble students and faithful disciples of Jesus. I love Psalm 86, 11. And may this be our theme verse for this series. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. Now, can you say that about things that are most culturally ingrained, most sacred to you? Can you lift your hands, open hands, and say, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth? Whether you have been raised or think like an egalitarian, or whether you've been raised and think like a complementarian, I have a feeling that these texts will offend you. They will challenge your cultural assumptions, and you need to be a humble and faithful student and disciple of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God made you man and woman for his glory and for our mutual good. The church needs to remember and Lord willing live out this truth. Let me pray. Father, be with us as we enter these tough texts. Thank you that your word, even where it's difficult, we get support from other passages. Your spirit is ministering to us. Father, help us to hear your word with these 
Very difficult texts, and texts are not only difficult to interpret, but debated in and of themselves. Father, I pray for our marriages, our families, our church family. As we, children of the great divorce, separated from your design, would begin to see the mutuality that you created between husbands and wives, that we would strive for that. For even the mutuality between brothers and sisters in Christ among your church family, in one of the most divided times in most of our lifetimes in this country and in this world, Father, that you would begin to develop in your church this interdependence and harmony that fits your design for the world. Help us to receive from your word in humility and trust and submission as you are our king. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.